And if you would turn in your Bible to the book of First Peter, First Peter, if you have trouble finding it, start at the back and go, go the other way. It's easier to get there. It's closer that way. Uh, my wife and I have a habit uh, every Sunday morning on the way in. I drive and she reads the text of my sermon to me. And that uh, helps me to see what parts are confusing if she has trouble reading it. And it helps get some things in my mind. This morning she said, uh, this makes people mad. People get angry over this. And I thought at first she was saying, you shouldn't say this because people get angry over this. And I was like, it's the truth. That's not what she was saying. But she was just reminding me, people get angry over this. But it's just what the Bible says. So I say that in, in preparation for you today. Uh, that I would like for you to just decide now if you're going to get mad. <laughs> and I'd like for you to decide not to get mad. If this, if, if we're, gonna, we're going to address doctrine this morning. And, and in the time that we have, we don't have time to exhaust it fully. Uh, but, but we're going to see what the word of the Lord says. The book of 1 Peter, this, we, we're beginning a systematic study through the first of Peter's epistles. And we refer to this book as an epistle, and we don't use that word in our everyday speech. So I just wanted to define it for us. We say epistle, you hear preachers say it, right? Well, the word epistle uh, basically just means a letter. So any writing in the form of a letter could be called an epistle. In the Bible, the Apostle Paul wrote epistles. He wrote 14 epistles, which make up two-thirds of the New Testament text. And there are seven other epistles not written by Paul, non-Pauline epistles, if you will. Uh, and uh, so that's 14 from Paul and seven uh, non-Pauline. If you need help adding those up, I'd be glad to help you later. The hint is this, count Hebrews under the Pauline epistles. And that'll, that'll help you. So, so someone, I knew someone you'd appreciate that, that I, how I got to that number. Uh, so we're just getting started digging into 1 Peter. And last time we said that it, we would do well to ask and answer some questions at the outset of any study in the book of, of the Bible. Uh, actually, any study. And, and we last week we asked and answered uh, one of the preliminary questions. Who is the author uh, and we had a reminder of reintroduction to the Apostle Peter who penned this particular letter. And we noted his leadership among the apostles and, and in, the, in the early church. And we recalled that he was powerfully used of God as a minister of the gospel. Well, today we return to the epistle and we ask a second question. We ask who wrote it. Now we ask to whom was this letter written? And we're going to read together the first eight verses, but don't get too excited. You know me, you know, between last week and this week, we're only going to cover verse one and just into verse two. But we're going to read the first eight verses. I'm reading these intentionally and we'll see toward the end why, we, why we're reading this whole section. So first Peter chapter one, beginning in verse one. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens Scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood. May grace and peace be yours to the fullest measure. 
Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. So that the good proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. We just expressed this in song, didn't we? Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joyful, in, with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Let's bow and ask God to bless our time together. Most holy and exalted triune God of scripture, we ask now your blessing on the reading and the preaching of your word. We pray that we would truly hear this morning, hear your word, hear the voice of our dear Savior. At the outset, we surrender ourselves to you through your word. Help us to listen. Help us to grow by it. We thank you that we are that we are monuments to your grace. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. So we see in verse 2, as we ask the question, to whom is this letter written? Look in verse 2, it says, to those who reside as aliens. So that answers our question for today. We'll close in prayer. And uh, no, we're not going to do that. That's a, that's, we've got to look a little deeper, a little closer and see. This letter is addressed to those who reside as aliens, but it mentions the scattered, the dispersed. Depending upon your translation, you may read the word alien, stranger, or exile. The point is made here that the letter is addressed to a people who are not at home. A people who are not at home. They are living as a resident in one place while their citizenship is in a different place. Now we understand that concept very well. We, we have friends, even friends who have been part of this body who are citizens of another country living here for a time. Some, some of those go on to become U.S. citizens, but we know resident aliens who live here and work here and pay taxes here, but they don't vote here because they're not citizens. They are resident aliens. And that's what this, this term is here. Exiles, those who are not at home. Exile is a theme in, in the Bible. When we look at the scripture, we see a theme of exile. Adam and Eve were exiled from the Garden of Eden. Abraham lived as a stranger, a foreigner in a strange land. And Hebrews 11 tells us that even when he lived in the promised land, he still lived as an exile, knowing that there was a permanent 
home for him in the future. It says, for he was looking for a city which has foundations whose architect and builder is God. He was not looking for a piece of dirt here on this earth. He was looking for a heavenly home. The whole nation of Israel knew of exile, being in bondage in Egypt, and then uh, when they were released, being in the wilderness, not having a home, wandering among so many nations, but not being at home. There's so much said in the Old Testament about aliens, strangers, sojourners, those who may come and stay with you for a while. And all this exile talk, all this alien stranger language of the Old Testament paints a picture for us. It, it paints a picture because every Christian in this world is in exile. Every Christian is a stranger. We are aliens. We live here on this earth, but our citizenship is in another place, in another land. As the song, the old song goes, this world is not my home. I'm just passing through. I can't feel at home in this world anymore. If your citizenship is in heaven, you are a stranger, an alien, a sojourner. So some suppose when we come to 1 Peter and we see that this is written to uh, aliens, strangers, those in exile. Some suppose that this was written only for the Jewish Christians who had been exiled from Israel. But this letter as it unfolds seems to say that it is more it, that it is intended for a broader audience, more than only just Jewish believers. Consider, if you will, if you're still there in First Peter, look down in verse 14, and we see this. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in ignorance. This seems to include those Gentiles who walked in sinful ignorance before coming to Christ. So this letter was written to Christians. To Christians living as strangers, as aliens. And there are some places named here. But we know that this epistle has direct application to all Christians since the time of its writing. All Christians living as aliens, strangers in this world, will find in this letter help, instruction, encouragement, and hope. Here in the opening of this letter, Peter sets the mind of the reader. He, he, he sets the mind of the recipient to think on a certain thing. How should we think as we read this letter? As an illustration, if I were to address you this morning and say, fellow Americans, it sets your mindset because of the way that I address you. It sets your mind to start to think about your American citizenship and to start thinking in that way. But if I were to say fellow Texans, now that changes things a little bit, doesn't it? All of a sudden our chest pop out a little bit more. <laughs> it, it changes things out of how we think of that. And, and, it, and it adjusts our thinking. Well, in the same way, what if I were to say to you this morning, I'd like to address you as automobile drivers and passengers. 
Do you see how depending upon the address, it changes the way you hear what is being said? And Peter does that very thing. He makes that adjustment here when he says elect. The elect. This letter is written to the elect. Now, the New American Standard that I'm reading from has it at the end of verse one, and it uses the word chosen. It's the same word. It's just translated chosen. The ESV, if you're reading an English standard, it has it in the middle of verse one to those who are elect exiles. Chosen, elect, same word there. And in the King James, we see the word at the first, that's the first word of verse two, elect. So it's here that Peter adjusts our thinking by addressing the recipients, addressing the reader as elect. Uh, by doing this, this is, this is like uh, the cover on your passport. The cover on the passport of a Christian. Now, for all of us who are Americans, if you have a passport, our passports all have different stuff inside. Different information, different personal identity information, different pictures, different stamps. There's different stuff on the inside. But if we look on the outside cover of our passports, they all say the same thing. United States of America. It's, it's, it says something about all of us. Well, here, Peter's doing the same thing. He's saying, this is what you all have in common. You are elect. You are chosen. Peter addresses all these Christians, and this applies to all Christians ever since. He calls us elect. This is who we are. We are the elect. Now, we use different names to refer to ourselves, don't we? And each name has real meaning. Christian. Believer. Follower. Saint. Disciple. All of these words have different meaning, but here Peter uses the word elect. And it also has meaning. So we need to consider this word, and we're going to consider the doctrine of Election. Now you know why this makes something more. To begin with, we should start with a working definition of the word election. Now, I've already said that the, the word elect is, is synonymous with the word chosen. We are elect, we are chosen, and we use those. So in short, a short definition would be, what is elect? Well, it means to be chosen. Uh, but a more robust definition would be something like this. Before time, God chose to bring some people into a grace covenant with himself, saving them from eternal hell and making them heavenly citizens. Let me read that again so you can listen and see what this definition says. Before time, God chose to bring some people into a, gr a grace covenant with himself, saving them from eternal hell and making them heavenly citizens. Now we may want to add more to that, more detail depending upon our specific beliefs, but that's a basic definition of what election is, of what it is to be elect. Another word that we need to consider, we've considered elect and chosen. We need to consider another word that is closely related and it needs to be introduced. This word is predestination. Predestination. 
uh, predestination or predestined is fundamentally another word that means elect or chosen. These three words fundamentally are the same. Predestination we can break down. The first part is pre and it speaks to the fact that this is an act of God before time. Pre. It's before time. And then the last part of the word destined or destination points to the end of time. It points to eternity. So predestined people were determined before time to have a place in heaven at the end of time. Predestined. And we'll use these words synonymous. We'll interchangeably. Chosen. Elect. Predestined. So we now have a, a working definition. Now we'll dig in and consider the doctrine, the teaching of election. And what does the Bible say? It, it, it always tickles me and, and this happens. I, I have specific things in my mind when I think of the people who I've spoken to who have said election. I, I don't believe in election. Predestination. No, we don't. We don't believe in predestination. And, and I know what they're trying to say. But between you and me, they're not saying it very well. The thing is that the Bible is so clear. The Bible so plainly teaches something of election that we must, if we're going to believe the Bible, we must believe in election. The Bible so plainly teaches something of predestination that if we're going to believe the Bible, we must believe in predestination. So the question really doesn't come, do we believe in election or predestination? But what do we believe in election or predestination? Ephesians 1, 5, having predestined us. Romans 8, 29 and 30, those whom he predestined. John 15, you did not choose me, but I chose you. Romans 8, 33, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Titus 1, 1, the faith of God's elect. Today, we read uh, just before from John 17, and, and Jesus prayed about those whom the Father had given him. Another place where that giving from the Father to the Son is the electing, the choosing. And when we include other words which mean the same thing or teach the same doctrine, we see this, this teaching on every page of Scripture. God God does actions. If we just look at the verbs, if we just look at the actions of God in Scripture, God elects. This is not all that He does, but this is what He does to save His people. God elects, He predestines, He wills, He draws, He grants, He calls, He ordains, He prepares, He causes, He chooses, He purposes, He delivers, He saves. He transfers, he makes alive, he brings forth, and he appoints. Now, if you're paying attention, those are Bible words. Then we come to verses like Acts 13, 48, and we see this speaks of election. And when the Gentiles heard of this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. And as, a, and as many as were appointed unto eternal life, Believe as many as were appointed. This is speaking of election, of choosing, 
So when we search the scripture asking, does the Bible teach election? We come back with a resounding yes. Not even inferences, but directly teaching election. So the real question is not, do you believe in election, Christian? It is, what do you believe about election? Now, there are two basic views of election. Two basic views which uh, might have slight modifications, but this covers the gamut of Christian thinking. Two views of election. The first view is that God elected, God chose based on his prior knowledge of a person's choice. If that person was going to choose God, God knew that by looking through time and God chose the people who were going to choose him. In this view, man is the determiner and God responds to man's act. God sees man's choice and man is the determiner and then God responds to man's act. That's one view of election. There are some problems with this view. First, this choosing is not really choosing. This electing is not really electing. It is the choice of man that is brought to eternity past. So it is not God who is choosing. It is not God who is electing, but it is the prior knowledge of the act of man. The first problem is that the Bible speaks so much of God's electing, God's choosing, God's predestining. And if it is the act of man, that seems disingenuous. It seems that we should talk about man's electing choice. So there's a problem there. Secondly, there's a problem that God, in this view of election, for so many looked down through time and learned of man's actions. Do you see a problem there? God learned. God cannot learn. God does not learn. God is all-knowing, and He does not learn. Thirdly, there's a problem here with our understanding, or with the understanding in this view of foreknowledge, of God's prior knowledge, foreknowledge of God. The Bible does not speak anywhere about God's foreknowledge of events or of facts. It speaks of God's foreknowledge of people. He knew me in my mother's womb. He knew me. Not he knew facts about me. Not he knew about events, but he knew, he, he foreknows people. Saying that God foreknew facts or events would be redundant because God knows everything. When the Bible speaks of God's foreknowledge, it speaks of a special covenant relationship with a person whom he foreknows. The last problem that we'll talk about in this view of election this morning is the problem of man's inability to choose faith in Jesus. Man's inability. The Bible uses metaphors, word pictures, if you will, to speak about the state of lost men. The pictures that are used to, to picture the state of lost men are 
infant birth, blindness, and resurrection from the dead. And in, in none of those things can a person do something to change their state. In none of those things does the person involve, involve themselves in changing things. The baby didn't do anything to contribute to conception. Did a baby decide to be born? Did a baby make a decision to be born? No. It's something that happens to that baby. A blind man doesn't just decide to see, doesn't just choose to see. If a blind man could choose to see, there would be no blind man. A blind man can't just choose to see. If he sees, it's something that is done to him. It's something that is not based on his own actions. And a dead man cannot raise himself from the dead. That is impossible. And it is also impossible for a lost man who is blind to the truth of God, who is dead to the things of God, to choose to be saved. Unless a prior work of God has been done in him. And we call that regeneration. And we're not talking about regeneration today. But the only way that a man can choose to be saved, can choose to place faith in Jesus, is that a prior work of God was done in his heart. The second view of election. The first view was God looks down the corridor of time. He sees who would choose him and he chooses them. The second view of election, and this is the view that I hold unashamedly. This is the view that God elected. He chose particular members of humanity, a multitude of which no man can number. He chose them to be saved. And then he orchestrated all the necessary things that would be required for the saving of those souls. So are you saved today? This view of election says God chose you before you were. And then he, he chose to save you. And then he orchestrated everything that must happen for your saving, for your salvation. Then God draws that person to Christ so that they choose him in response to his election. So do we choose God or does God choose us? Yes, the answer is both. But Christians, our choosing God is in response to his electing, to his choosing us. In this way, our view of election is opposite of the other view. In the other view, man is the determiner and God responds to man's choice. But in our view, and I believe this is the biblical view, God is the determiner and man responds to God's choice. But we have to say that our view of election also has some problems. They're not problems like the other view, but, but there are problems. And so that I'm not being disingenuous, I want to tell you, we'll find that these problems are not with the doctrine. These problems are not with God. These problems are not with Scripture. These problems lie with us. The first problem that we will consider is that the Bible clearly speaks and often speaks about the responsibility of men and women to repent of their sin and to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. 
All people have a responsibility and the Bible speaks of it clearly and often. The problem may be stated in this way. God's sovereignty versus man's responsibility. God's sovereign choice, God's sovereign work in salvation. How do we square that with man's responsibility that is so clearly laid out? At the outset, there are two errors that we must avoid. Two errors that we must avoid. The first error is uh, the Arminian or the semi-Pelagian error. They would hold the first view of election and they favor man's responsibility and sacrifice God's sovereignty, leaving the salvation of man in the hands of the man. So we must avoid that to sacrifice God's sovereignty. But on the other side of the spectrum, we have the hyper-Calvinist who would hold to God's sovereignty and then sacrifice man's responsibility. Man is left with nothing to do and they end up with some sort of a fatalist attitude about salvation. Beloved, we must, we must believe all the scriptures that speak of God's sovereignty over salvation of the sinner. We must hold to them and believe them and cherish them. And beloved, we must Believe all the verses of scripture that speak to a man's responsibility. The, the commands to repent and believe like from Acts 17. God now commands all people everywhere to repent. And the command, think we think of this verse, we don't think of it as a command. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That's a command. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. So we must hold to the scripture where it speaks of God's sovereignty. And we must hold to the scripture where it speaks of man's responsibility. And I know that every one of you are thinking, get on to the next point so that we can see how to reconcile these things. But you're not going to hear that from me. Because we don't find it in the scripture. Both things are true. Both must be believed without sacrificing the other. So there is a problem here, but the problem is with us. The problem's not with God. And the problem is not with man's responsibility, nor is it with God's sovereignty. The problem is with us. And that brings us to the second problem. We can't figure out election. Now, now I needed another point. Maybe I could have put these two together. But we can't figure out election. On what basis does God choose? How does he decide to choose one and pass over another? How do we reconcile the paradox of sovereignty and responsibility? We don't have enough information to answer these questions. Scripture doesn't give us enough to answer these questions. We don't have all the answers. And we are a people who like to have all the answers. We're a people who like to take stuff apart and put it back together and say, I know how that works. I'm looking out at some of you who are engineers. I know that's your thing. I like to know how something goes together. You can only trust the thing that you know how it goes together. It, it, that's, that's how I think often, isn't it? A thing that I can't take apart and put back together, that's just fictional. That's not fact. 
So some people come to scripture and they see the doctrine of election and the doctrine of man's responsibility. And they say, I can't take this apart and put it back together. I can't figure out on what basis God chooses. So it must not be truth. Well, the problem is explained for us in Isaiah chapter 55 verses 8 and 9. The problem is not explained like it's resolved. But the problem is explained. And here's what we read in Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. God speaking. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Beloved, you won't ever be able to figure God out. He is beyond comprehension. How he does, why he does what he does. We'll never be able to figure it out. I had a friend once, some of you would know him if I called his name. He said he could not believe in Jesus for salvation because he couldn't understand on what basis God saved sinners. He couldn't understand God's election. And as far as I know to this day, that man is still lost. And if he does not humble himself, because that is nothing but pride and arrogance there that says, I've got to understand it all before I can trust in God. If he doesn't humble himself, he'll die and go to hell. He'll never know God's thoughts. He'll never comprehend God's ways. God has revealed so many things to us in the scripture. He's revealed things... He's revealed things that are for us and for our children. Deuteronomy 31, 30. He's revealed things and the revealed things are for us and for our children. But the secret things, those belong to the Lord. So many people are after finding out God's secrets. They're God's secrets and they're for him. The revealed stuff, we've got enough revealed stuff to keep us busy. The revealed things are for us. And a God, a God that we, and I'm using that in a lowercase g here, a God that we can figure out is not worth worshiping. If we can figure out our God, then really who's God? You're God. If you can figure out your God, then you're really God. Our God, the God of Scripture, is beyond figuring out, and He is worthy of worship. Now, the third problem that I have here on our view of election, someone may be asking, what about man's free will? What about man's free will? If God elects and man acts only in response to God, what about man's free will? Well, first, let me say, along with many other theologians, that the term free will, for the most part, should be dropped from our vocabulary. There is a sense in which we are free moral agents, but free will, as it has commonly been used, does not exist. Free will is not a thing. Since the Garden of Eden and Adam's sin, free will is not a thing. In the first place, everyone's will is influenced by all sorts of outside input. If you think, no, this I'm not influenced by anything. You are sadly mistaken. Our wills are influenced 
by other things, by outside input, by information, by stimuli, by emotions. We are influenced for every decision that we make. And secondly, we cannot freely will to act outside of our nature. We cannot freely will to act outside our nature. Birds fly. Fish swim in the water without coming up for a breath. But if you jump off a tall building, you don't have bird nature. If you go to the bottom of the ocean, you don't have fish nature. It only takes a few short seconds for us to understand in those circumstances, we do not have free will. You can't will to fly and you can't will to breathe underwater. Free will as it is used by so many is you can just will anything. You just choose freely, but you cannot act outside of your nature. Now, some of you may be thinking, that's silly. Why are you pointing out that we can't act outside of our nature? Well, it's important because you cannot freely choose to change your nature. And that's really the problem of sin. We inherited from Adam, everyone who comes from Adam, that's all of you. Everyone who comes from Adam inherits from Adam a corrupt nature, a sin nature. The nature is our real problem. And we need to have that nature, that sin nature removed and a new nature, a perfect sinless nature inserted. And you can't do that by your will. God is the one who has to remove that stony dead heart and put in a heart that beats for him. You can't act outside your nature. You can't change your nature. Only God can do this. Also, you might go through scripture and see how many references there are to man's free will. Some of you think you've thought of a few, but I would challenge you to go back and look at them again. There's only one reference to man's free will that we find in scripture. And it's in the book of Philemon when Paul is encouraging Philemon to take Onesimus back. And he says, I don't want you to do this. And I'm paraphrasing. I don't want you to do this under compulsion. I don't want you to do this because I'm making you. I want you to do it out of your free will, your free choice. And that's the only reference that we have to man's free will. And that's not much scripture to build a doctrine of man's free will upon. This is why Luther and other theologians have spoken about man's will as being enslaved, as being in bondage. And by the way, Christians, we also must remember that the Bible doesn't speak of us in those free terms. Even after we come to Christ, we are what? Slaves. We were slaves to sin, no longer slaves to sin. Now you're free, not slaves to anything. No, the Bible says now you're a slave to righteousness. Now you're a slave to righteousness. So this idea of freedom, we have to get that, we have to get that worked out. We're coming to the close. There are several problems that we see here with our view of election that God chose particular members of the human race to be saved, and his choice is determinate. But the problems that we see with it are really problems with us. They're really problems with our thinking. Perhaps when we enter into heaven and we have a new mind, perhaps we'll understand these things. 
But for the here and the now, we have to leave them in the hands of God. We have to hold them as irreconcilable in our minds. God's sovereignty, man's responsibility. Before we close, I want to look at one more problem. It's a question that people ask, or sometimes they just make a, a statement. Doesn't this doctrine that God elects, that God chooses certain ones and passes over others, doesn't this doctrine produce prideful and arrogant Christians? Some people who first hear the doctrine of election, they say, oh, well, that sounds arrogant. You're saying you're, you're elect and someone else is not. And yet when you say it like that, it does sound arrogant, doesn't it? So let's consider the question. First of all, no person can know if another person is elect or not. So as far as saying someone else is not elect, we can't do that. We can't look at a person and say that person's not elect. We can say that there are elect and there are non-elect people, but they don't have an E stamped on their shoulder. So we don't know who they are. By the way, this is why we preach the gospel to every person. We don't know who God's elect are, but we are guaranteed that he is going to save the elect. So we preach knowing that God is saving souls. Secondly, when we say that God's election is based on his own purpose and his own will, really what we're saying is that we don't know about his choices. We don't know why God don't we ask that? Those of you who have come to the doctor's graduate, don't you ask that? Why did God choose me? We ask that question, but we don't know the answer to that. But there are some things that we do know. There are some things that we can say, God's choice is definitely not based on this. God's choice is not based on guilt or innocence. If God only chose the innocent, he would choose no one. Because we're all guilty in sin under Adam. God's choice is not based on someone being a good person. Compared, you know, compared to everybody else, you're a pretty good person. Is God's choice based on that? Listen, God saved Abraham the liar, Jacob the cheater, Moses the murderer, David the adulterer, and God saved me. So we know that God's choice is not based on good people or goodness. <coughs> When we see election as it is, God's choice, not based on anything in the creature, but it's all about him. When we see it that way, it strips out all the handholds for our pride. Our pride has nothing left to grasp onto. The Bible even tells us about God's electing. He has not chosen many wise, he has not chosen many noble. He chose the foolish and the weak. Now, when we say we are the elect, what are we saying? We're not many wise. We're not many noble. Many foolish and many weak. Is this an arrogant, prideful position? A healthy doctrine of election does not lead to pride. It leads to it leads to worship. It leads to doxology. 
when we realize the hopelessness of our condition as lost sinners, and then we see the great lengths to which God went to save me. That's really how you got to say it. The lengths to which God went to save me, this wretch of a sinner, not just sinners in general, but this wretched sinner, me. We are left with nothing to do but to worship and to praise and to express gratitude to him for the great salvation that we have in Christ. We see this in Paul's writing where Paul will talk about a doctrine of salvation and he'll just break out into worship. And we see it here at the beginning of 1 Peter. He says, you are elect. I'm writing to the elect. And then he goes straight into doxology. Look again at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away, reserved for you in heaven. He continues, this doxology just pours out of, we are elect. We are chosen. We were predestined. We'll look at that doxology in another sermon, Lord willing. Today I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand in it. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would apply these truths to our hearts. Help us, Lord, where we have been, where we have been taught something else, something that does not square with your word. Help us to see the truth of Scripture. God, we pray that you would remove pride. That you would remove arrogance. We pray that we would see the doctrine of election for exactly what it is. You being a gracious, loving, merciful, saving God. God, we pray even today that you would sanctify saints and that you would continue to save elect sinners. It's in Christ's name that we ask this. Amen.